With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. After 22 films featuring a legion of heroes and villains, it's the end of sorts for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Avengers Endgame is the culmination of an epic undertaking on the part of Marvel Studios and delivers thrills, laughs, spectacular set pieces in one or two tiers and also a very popular Scottish fizzy drink for those paying close attention. Um, We've done our best to avoid spoilers but if you haven't seen Endgame or indeed Infinity War you might want to wait before diving into this latest episode of Soundtracking, the film music podcast with me Edith Bowman. Now, as with Infinity War, Endgame is directed by Joe and Anthony Russo with the score provided by Alan Silvestre. And in the fine tradition of the Marvel movies, we've got a rather large bonus at the end of our conversation in the shape of my first interview with the Russo brothers. To save you searching for it on the internet, really is worth revisiting. But where else could we begin than with Alan's iconic theme, which sadly may never be put to use again? Dun, 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 dun. Okay, I'll stop now. Anthony, welcome back to Soundtrack. It yawns. Don't yawn. Yeah. <laughs> We've not it's started. Jet lag, it's jet lag. I know. Yeah. I was going to ask you for tips. I got back last night. Yeah. I just handed in the movie. Uh, six days. Six days You're ago. allowed to yawn. And I was in India uh, four days ago. Five days ago. How does it feel that, like you say, you've handed the movie in? That uh, that's it's that's fantastic. it. I mean, yeah. it's good to reach that point in the process where they pry it out of your. <laughs> your hands <laughs> did you don't want to let it go put in the theaters you can always keep these movies are so large yeah that you can continue to work on them well beyond the release date well how, how do you know when to stop they just they take it yeah, what they, tells you they, to they stop? just take it from when you. the money runs out or the time runs out that's <laughs> all that that's the only reason to stop okay well listen it's almost a year pretty much yeah. to the day since we we last spoke and last time i'd seen 20 minutes of the film mm-hmm. uh i got 12 this maybe, morning maybe less maybe uh, less. it was eight minutes including eight minutes, the little kind yeah. of sort of 
excitement from everybody. Yeah, yeah. the little sizzle um, reel. Yeah, exactly, yeah. which was just, I mean, I was almost self-combusted just watching yeah. that this morning. But yeah, I've seen eight minutes of it. And I have to say, so part of that eight minutes is the opening of the film, I, I'm assuming, with RDJ and Nebula. Mm -hmm. Is that the opening? Mm-hmm, yep, and Nebula, yep. Yeah, there's a piece of music mm -hmm. that you start the film with, and I think it's incredibly clever because it immediately made me feel safe and i felt like ah okay because i think a lot of people kind of going into this film for following on from infinity war will be kind of like tense and kind of like oh my god what's going to happen but this is a wonderful calmness mm. to the start of this film yeah. and i think a lot of that is through the, the choice of that track which i i is it a creed track i couldn't watch traffic out. traffic okay hey, mr fantasy yeah uh, it's it's wonderful to hear you describe it because that was very much the motivation for that it's it's like how do you come back from a from the experience of infinity war it's like why are we all going back to these movies you know <laughs> and there's something in that track that there's a melancholy in there but there's also a hopefulness and a longing in that song aside from the fact that the lyrics are also very metaphoric uh, i think for the experience of seeing the movie yeah i mean metaphoric for marvel yeah yeah in and of itself there's a meta yeah. there's a meta it's... sort of layer to that song as well um hey mr fantasy Fantasy, yeah, because yeah, I wrote down the lyric, happy, yeah. something to make us all have peace, yeah. was the lyric that I wrote down from, from that kind of little section that I heard this morning, frantically yeah. writing it down sort of thing. to choose that song and at what point did you we tried a lot of songs yeah there. i mean a lot but there was joe and i just kept coming back to that song because there was something just so again like tonally it just felt it, it gave us it gave us that quality we wanted which was again like the positivity the hopefulness the resiliency of like of that part of like the human spirit while at the same time acknowledging there's the, just soulfulness the to yeah, it. Soulfulness and, and, and the melancholy. And there's, yeah, there's a melancholy. I pulled up the lyrics here. It's Dear Mr. Fantasy, play us a tune. Something that make us all happy. Do anything that take us out of this gloom. Sing a song, play guitar, make it snappy. You know, I think I'm it's... I'm going to cry. Yeah, <laughs> it's a... Uh, 
But it's also it's a metaphor for you know being a filmmaker and making commercial movies. I think it's also uh, uh, a metaphor for what we you know what we did uh, at the uh, at the uh, to people at the end of Infinity War. So it all was so meta. We just felt like the lyrics were too appropriate. It set tone. It worked for story, and uh, you know. But it's one of those. It's unique for to find a song that works on so many levels. Also, Joe and I. It was you know we like to keep. We like to give audiences a fresh experience in each film. You know, yeah, it's different from the other films, and just for us, for us, you haven't seen that something like that before. Starting with the needle drop. The wonderful thing we talked about the last time was working with Alan Silvestro on the score and about how you know you asked him for um, for sweets and things for, for different characters and Thanos is sweet to kind of and it, it helped so many ways both for you guys but also for the, the actors and stuff as well by letting them hear that kind of thing as well. There's another beautiful piece of music in the this even in this sh in this short piece that I saw today. There's so much that it's kind of informed me. This wonderful piece of score whilst Iron Man is recording a message, which we've seen a little mm -hmm. bit of in the, in the trailer sort of thing. And then as he sleeps, there's another kind of piece and it just is absolutely stunning. It's a yeah, gorgeous, gorgeous, but yep. it's very different to what we've heard before. And like you say, mm -hmm. you want every movie to be a different experience. And I wondered whether with Alan that relates to the music as well in terms of this is a different film. They're, they're the uh, same 100%. Character. I mean, he took it a completely different approach. When you're dealing with movies like this and the trap you can fall into with uh, movies that, that are aligned this closely, all, all, first of all, Marvel movies are serialized, but in particular, Infinity War and Endgame are, are um, have you know a very close proximity to one another. Not only in the time that they're released, but in you know, the way that the uh, uh, the movies interact with one another. The only way to, to distinguish films like that is through, uh, or, or two of the ways you can do that is through point of view and uh, tone. Mm. And um, and music plays a huge part in expressing point of view, uh, and it also plays a, an enormous part in expressing tone.
And I think the point of view on Infinity War was that the, the film was told from Thanos' point of view. And the score is driven by Thanos' mission in the movie. Obviously, it's complemented by moments like Thor's mission and his attempt to uh, build the axe to stop Thanos. But some of the biggest, uh, most dramatic moments of music in that film are Thanos's. This movie is not told from Thanos' point of view. And so the music has shifted point of view. And the tone of this film is distinct from Infinity War, so that has also shifted. So I just don't think there was a corollary between the two movies, and it was obviously much better for him to just reset and help us distinguish this as its own entity. That's amazing. I would have assumed that there would have been kind of, you know, that not everything was there already sort of thing, but I, I, I think it's wonderful that it's got its own journey. It's not relying on that previous film. Yeah, and it, yeah. it has to. I mean, I, to a certain extent, there are... Obviously, this is a movie based on 21 previous films and 11 different franchises. Wow. And, you know, so uh, there, are, there, you know, there are moments that uh, the thematics mm. uh, uh, can uh, be intertwined from the past. Yeah. Just in terms of, you know, uh, uh, character themes. But even then, you still have to create a fresh interpretation that services the pre, you know, the the present story. so hard because I, I'm you know you make this film for fans and I know how dear you hold the fans reactions I'm a fan as well and the last thing I always try and do on this podcast is never give spoilers away and things like that so I know it's kind of quite difficult to talk about the film in any great detail it is, yeah. um, 
but um, we can show excitement about it, like I will. But are there any other needle drops that you can tell me about within the film that were made, the decisions were made for any specific reasons, for, for characters or for... Yeah, there are a few other uh, needle drops in the movie, and um, you know they're they're for specific reasons in the film. Yeah. Again, for people who haven't seen it, we don't get uh, uh, you know uh, define what those specifics are, but you know they're in there for energy. Yeah. Uh, they're in there for tone shifts. Um, some for even you know more unique reasons. Uh, but again, I think you should see the movie um, to discover why. But needle drops are are interesting. Like they really. To be very careful with them because it's a it's one of the more predictable tools to yeah. use uh, in a movie, especially uh, from a soundtrack perspective. And they really, really have to earn their place in a film. And that it, it does have to either affect the tone or the mood, or create a shift, or you know, speak to thematics like uh, uh, Mr. Fantasy does at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. And when you're working with someone like Alan Silvestri, you just want to give him all of the real estate that you can. Yeah. Uh, um, to uh, to lay his music into the film. unless you've made one of these movies but when you're working on a film like this you're happy with the uh with the edit and the story and the structure you can be very happy with all of that but until the music is applied to the movie you really don't feel the flow of the film mm -hmm. uh the thematics of the film and it's something that happens when you're working with you know a maestro like alan is you know one of the two greatest you know living uh composers for for film it's just the way that he can enhance the experience of watching a movie yeah on the most subtle and and uh, emotive levels it's just staggering you know we have the experience when we finally heard the full score applied to infinity war and we have the same experience when we heard the full score applied to endgame
I imagine it's the entire opposite of the experience that you talked about in our last chat with Arrested Development, where you originally had the it kind of riddled with 80s that's right. music, but right. it was like, oh, that's a bit expensive. And then we How... ripped on it all. <laughs> and we just ripped it all up. However, with this, I imagine you have the pride of place in the world of music supermarket where you can have anything you want. Biggest orchestra in the world, whatever yeah. it is that you need. Any track you want yeah. in the world, it's yours. And sometimes, yeah. you sometimes must be in that position. Sometimes you yeah. want, you we know, get... three instruments playing, and sometimes you want a uh, hundred. Yeah. You know. By was... the way, we recorded our, our score uh, here in London at Abbey Road. Well, yeah. did you do the Beatles? No, we don't. Oh, have that come part. on. <laughs> we're we're unfortunately <laughs> we sit in Los Angeles over a calm lake. Oh no. Yes. You've yeah. got to come over and watch right. it. I know, we're, we're just still, for that show. We're still getting like 100 VFX shots a day while we're scoring. <laughs> so we wow. have to walk from the VFX room over to the scoring stage and back to the VFX room. film fans and you know making this final film for the for the fans what's the memory you'll take away from making Endgame a lot of happy faces when you go see fans around the world and I think that's the best part it's so rare as a filmmaker to be part of movies that are cultural events like this and I think um, that's special and it's it's special to be involved with films that have a global reach like this where you can view them with thematics that yeah, are important or, you know, even positive thematics. It was a movie about a diverse and uh, eclectic group of characters that come together uh, to form something uh, uh, stronger than what they are individually. And I think, um, and stand up in the face of uh, adversity, that's that's a potent message in, in today's world. What's uh, exciting about it for me is the, uh, you know, a lot of times the audience will generally respond to a movie the way Joe and I are, are responding to a mm-hmm. movie, but not always. And, and sometimes there, there's significant differences. And uh, that's what I'm really looking forward to discovering because we haven't started screening the movie yet. So um, I'm really excited to see and feel and learn how the audience receives this movie in ways that are different from how, how he and I receive it. When we last spoke, Infinity War was, was just about to come out. Belated congratulations on Thank that. You. But with that, Going into the edit of this film, did that have a an influence in, in any way on you? Was it on your shoulders? Was it in your mind in terms of the expectation of this final film from how well received, you know, this kind of part one of the end had been? I think the th- thing that became heightened for us was this understanding. We knew the ending of Infinity Wars was going to be complicated for people. It was complicated for us. Yeah. But I don't think we really, until we saw the depth of emotion that people were having over that ending, that sort of brought a new level of understanding and sensitivity for us to it. And I think we did carry that that idea forward. 
the truth is, you know, there were no major changes to our plan with Endgame. Yeah. As a result of Infinity War coming out, because we had done so much of the work by that point for what Endgame was going to be. But it definitely did inform some subtleties in terms of how we approached the story and how we pushed us toward this idea of opening the movie with um, Mr. Fantasy, like you were talking about, yeah. that tone, that sort of that melancholy, soothing tone might have been even more appealing to us after after seeing people react to Infinity War. And the game they play at the beginning. Yeah. It's so yeah. great. It's not the opening I was expecting, and I love it. It's a, a human opening. Exactly. I mean, it's sort of, the, the, the really compelling thing that um, we're able to explore in Infinity War, which I think is about as a unique experience as you'd have uh, um, making commercial movies, is Marvel and Disney allowed us to kill half the characters at the end of the movie. And, <laughs> And have a you know a, a cynical ending to a very very expensive film. What that does on a character level uh, for your characters is it challenges them, it dimensionalizes them. I think that's why it's important to have movies that throw you curveballs like this. And loss is an important part of life, as as an important part of life as winning is. Yeah. Yeah, and it's funny because you, you know again. Your your question about the ending of Infinity War and how it was received, or, or Infinity War in general, I, it's 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 really becoming clear to me how much this sort of informed like the beginning of Endgame for us and what you're talking about. Yeah. So it's like here we are coming back from the, the the biggest plot point in the in in the MCU by far, where half the universe is killed. Mm -hmm. And it's like so Joe and I are thinking, you know, we'd love to make subversive choices. So how are we going to start the next? What's the next beat in the story after mm -hmm. that moment? And it's like, is it going to be some sort of like epic plot idea yeah. that flows from the the bigness of that of of the end of infinity war and it's like no let's come into the movie on a small little mm -hmm. moment and basically an improvised moment between tony stark and nebula where they're like playing paper football uh, while they're stuck on a spaceship <laughs> and that's it it could it couldn't be the mo it's most random slice of life character moment mm. and i think that's very appealing to us because it's defying what your expectations are yeah also, I think it was important for us to start the movie there because there was something very life-affirming in that character relationship there. When you yeah. have two great actors performing together and connecting with one another over the smallest, most random thing, there's something very life-affirming about that. And I thought that was a nice step forward after the ending of Infinity War. <laughs> One of the other things I've loved about being a fan of this world over the last, you know, 10 so years is sitting right to the very, very end of the films and having one extra surprise, maybe two. And that makes me sad that we might possibly not have one at the end of this film. Well, we can't say one way or the other, but, uh, you know, I mean, look, that's what I think people enjoy about the Marvel Universe, the serialized aspect of it, is that those tags, in a way, create a... Uh, a framing device yeah. for the larger mosaic that the movie you just watched is part of. You know, it mm. frames it in that mosaic and ties it to it. Oh, here comes another character. Here comes another plot point. Oh, this is how it leads to that. Uh, and that's as exciting as, as watching the movie itself in a lot of ways. You said that opening track, you know, you went through a lot of tracks deciding on it. What about the closing music of the film? The movie also ends on a needle drop. For as well as Mr. Fantasy works, the final needle drop in the movie, again, it's really one of the most exciting things I think we've ever done musically. I love mm. the way the movie ends. Kiss me once, then kiss me twice, then kiss me once again. It's been a long, long time. Haven't felt 
like this, my dear, since can't remember when. It's been a long, long time. You'll never know how many dreams I dreamed about you, or just how empty they all seemed without you. So kiss me once, then kiss me twice. Kiss me once again. It's been a long, long time. Basically, what happens is it cuts the black on "Don't Stop Believing" by Journey, <laughs> and uh, it's a very ambiguous ending. And then we come You're up, not sure what happens. We have the entire yeah. uh, anyone who's ever appeared in an MCU movie is all singing it together. It's Avengers great. the musical yeah, right. that's what I'm talking about and yeah. um, what what we've had obviously be- between the two films is Captain Marvel and Brie absolutely nailing it as this character she mm-hmm. is phenomenal the music in that film as well is so 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 good But it was bonkers to think, for me anyway, that in the trailer and the, and the clip that I saw today where Thor grabs the hammer and it flies past and she doesn't even flinch, that was shot before she'd even shot any of Captain Marvel. Yeah, That's that was one of our great believe. challenges was, it was, you know, now here's the thing, I should go back, you know, we've done this before, like we, we introduced Black Panther in Civil War, we introduced mm-hmm. Spider-Man in Civil War, but when we worked with those characters in that movie, like their individual standalone films had not been, uh, the directors hadn't been hired, they hadn't been... The, those movies hadn't been it, it, it weren't in full de- development yet yeah so when we were working with those two characters we could do whatever we want because it wasn't affecting anything so we cast those roles and we just wrote those uh, stories and those characters with marcus and mcfeely however we wanted this was different because while we were working with captain marvel her standalone fleck and Bowden had already been hired and they were working uh, developing the script so there was almost two things being done concurrently with captain marvel which made things a little more complicated mm. um you know, we had to stay in a little more contact with one another about how things were developing, but they were on a much longer sort of discovery process than we were. They were working on an entire feature film, and we were simply like, you know, her, her role, We were she was a part of a much larger ensemble yeah. in this film. So um, it was challenging. That was one of the hardest things, I think, in the whole production was, uh, and, and I think it was also challenging for Brie in the sense that she had to, we had to figure out her character in this movie. Like, for instance, they cast... Brie in the first, we didn't even cast Brie, so that's how far along their project was. Yeah, amazing casting. 
yeah. Oh yeah. my god. Fantastic. Oh my god. So yeah, good. Yeah. Just that sassiness and that kind mm-hmm. of confidence. Yes. Just so good. And the fight inside the character. Oh yeah. The spirit of the character. So yeah. great. But you see, from seeing Mo- Captain Marvel, it's, that's what I mean. It's crazy to think that was shot first because that small thing that I've seen her in Endgame so informed by what i've seen her doing marvel yeah and she... in a way it's yeah. just a it seems like it's a, you know a slightly more wise version of that mm-hmm. because she is she's lived another yeah. 20 years yeah uh and uh, so there is a, a bit more containment to the um aggressive mm-hmm. uh, energy from captain marvel so i do think that it, it attracts quite well you said last time that Stairway Heaven was the track that was on set, repeated, like pretty much on loop. What was the song for this film that was on loop the whole time? Stairway, Could have been, Stairway to Heaven. Can't have been. You're a poor cast for the no, But we played, it, we played it backwards. Okay, there we go. You know, it's really funny. It was like we were just going through the deleted scenes uh, from yeah. Infinity War and uh, thinking about what to include uh, to show people. And uh, there's, a, there's a clip where... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Chris Hemsworth and Downey and um, Chris Evans are all jamming to <laughs> to a stereo to heaven on stage in their costumes. Amazing. It's really funny. Put that on, please. Put on the yeah, extras. Definitely. definitely. Yeah. Anthony, Joe, thank you so much for your time once again. Always Cheers. a pleasure. Thank, thank you. So you. Guys. Yeah, Cheers. Great. Thank you. There's a lady who's sure All that glitters is gold And she's buying a stairway to she gets there she knows if the stores are all closed with a word she can get what she can and she's buying a stairway there's a sign on the wall but she wants to be sure Cause you know sometimes words have to mean In a tree by the brook There's a songbird who sings Sometimes all of our thoughts are mishearing As played by the Russo brothers on the set of Avengers Infinity War and Endgame that is of course Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin, rounding off our second chat with Anthony and Joe. But, as promised, we've dug out my previous conversation with the boys, so you don't have to. Before we get to that, a reminder that you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And do join us uh, with our next live event with Max Wichter at London's BFI on Wednesday the 8th of May. Tickets are available via the BFI's website. Next up is an award-winning Finnish director by the name of Dome Karakoski, who is an incredible director and worked with a wonderful collection of composers, most recently Thomas Newman, on his telling of the life of J.R.R. Tolkien, simply entitled Tolkien. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Anthony and Joe, welcome to Soundtrack, and it's a real honour and pleasure to have you guys with us. Thank Thanks. you, our Thanks. pleasure to be here. Let's start with Infinity War. What I think is wonderful about the Marvel films is almost each Marvel film or section of Marvel films has its own sound. 
you guys have got the job of bringing all those together. Where did you start with music with Infinity War? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, classic commercial cinema uh, is often associated with a piece of score. It was important uh, that Alan Silvestri do Avengers 3 and 4 because the one theme that we have that really resonates at Marvel is that Avengers theme. So we really started there. We started building around Alan Silvestri. bringing in characters from all these different universes, so there is some cross-pollination in terms of music. Uh, obviously, the Guardians tend to have a soundtrack, and um, you know, there's a really uh, a resonant score, I think, uh, for Black Panther. So, uh, so that we, we're starting to collect identity, mm. uh, and it's our job, I think, to seamlessly weave that throughout. Part of the uh, sort of the upside of this movie is that you know, the cast is so large, and the characters are coming from such a wide variety of films. So we basically started with, uh, you, know, you know, we had that same challenge with the music that yeah. we had with the movie in general, which was how do you represent all these different characters, all these different uh, voices and all these different tones as they come together in this film. And we talked it through with Alan quite a bit, and he's a really brilliant guy. I mean, the best composers are also great storytellers. And yeah. it's such a joy to collaborate with somebody like Alan because you just talk story with them and he figures out you know, how to translate that musically. And uh, for a while, we explored this idea of like really sort of giving each character his or her own themes and stuff like that. And then we began to realize that because the movie was so complex, mm -hmm. the music could serve as more of a unifying force in the film and sort of help simplify the story for people on an emotional level, on a textural level. So, and that's really sort of the road we ended up going down with Alan on it.
And Alan, obviously, writing that original theme, Avengers theme, and it's like six notes or something. But as soon as you kind of hear it, it's like it's like that Spider-Man scene that we've seen in the trailer where the, he's on the bus yeah. and the hair is on your arms. Yeah. Yeah. You know, do you yeah, guys, do you one. get that? Do you get that emotion when you hear those scores? Uh, absolutely. And it's really, I think, it's the way that you understand the emotional response the audience will have is because you're having that same emotional response. Uh, again, you know, we say this all the time, but we're fans. And I think that's, a, that's where our metric com comes from. It's where our instincts lie in, well, what is going to excite me if I'm sitting in the theater? What is it that I want to hear? What is it that I want to see? And, you know, that's a lot of, we, we apply that same instinct to the music as well. It was very important to us to get that original Avengers theme back in the movie, and it's in a couple of critical moments, and um, it's very rousing. Last night when I, when I got to see the footage, which I got to watch twice, which is amazing. Is it the Detroit Spinners, the track that, that we hear in the scene where the Guardians discover Thor? Robber Van Man. Yeah. What a tune. Yeah. When it comes to things like that, needle drop type things, is that fun? Is that a fun element to, to when you have to find things like that or pieces of music? Do you work together on that? You've got music supervisor, I guess, as well, who might throw things your way. Yeah, I mean, we're, we, we, you know, we grew up in Cleveland. <laughs> Cleveland's a big music city, yeah. you know, so we, we, we love music, you know. So Needle Drops are a particular favorite of ours. And yes, we do, but we do work with a lot of very talented music supervisors who help supply ideas. And sometimes what we'll do is we'll play songs on set very often. We do while we're shooting Great. to help give ourselves and, and our crew and our camera operators and the actors a sense of the rhythm and the tone for a scene. And sometimes we'll go through a big uh, experimenting process in post, you know, about what song works right. Just because you use a song on set yeah. to set a tone doesn't mean you have to stick with that song in the edit. So it's, sometimes it evolves and sometimes it stays the same as our original uh, ideas. Sounds like a party vibe on set. Uh, it is. You want to create energy. And I think tone, especially in a movie that's totally complicated, is easily identified through music, which is why we play it on set. Sometimes we'll loop a song all day long 
because that's the tone we're trying to drive out of that scene and the scene takes us all day to shoot and it works for the actors it's great because they they kind of can settle into a space every time they hear it and they understand what it is that we're trying to do That song in particular is a little bit of choreography to it, so it was important that the actors uh, all had earwigs and were wired into the music and, and knew exactly what was going on with it, referring to Rubber Band Man. Hand me down the walking cane, hand me down my hat. Hurry now and don't be late, cause we ain't got time to chat. It's an exploratory process too because sometimes the tone you set on set is not the tone you want when you get in the edit room as Ann said and then you go hunting a little bit but we have a vast music library we use a lot of music on shows like Arrested Development Community it's important to us we grew up uh, a music family and grew up in Cleveland Ohio so rock is in our blood and uh, <laughs> you know I think Cleveland is the only city in the world that that has 11 classic rock stations you just go from one to the next on the dial. There's nothing else. Yeah. That's amazing. What kind of stuff did you play on set then? What were the kind of what were the artists or the tunes or that you, you were playing on set? You know, it's such a wide variety of stuff. You know, sometimes Stairway to Heaven was on a loop for like three days. Yeah, because there we was. You never want to hear it ever yeah. again. We won't tell you what scene we used it for, but it was on a loop for three days.
you know, sometimes we play a lot of like Ray Barreto or, you know, just sort of energy yeah. stuff that like, you know, if we want sort of like a sense of movement, you know, we'll find stuff that has like a Pacing. drive to it. Yeah. And again, it just gives a flavor to, to especially to the camera operators, mm -hmm. you know, of like what the flow is, you know, what the, what, the, what the vibe is. So, you know, yeah, it's a wide variety of stuff. Yeah, there's a nice piece of score, I think, from the Daredevil show called Battle and Jack Murdoch that, that I think we used for one sequence as well. Yeah. Yeah, just as a backdrop. did Alan come into the process in terms of thinking about score and thinking about music and, and how it was going to work with the film? How, how early on in the process did he come on board? Very beginning, yeah. yeah. I mean, we started uh, conversations with Alan like well before we even had a script. You know, we, we were talking about him, about the, the story, about because again, he is such a big brain. He's such an amazing composer. We wanted it to be able to uh, marinate in his brain for as long as possible, you know, so, yeah, exactly. He, so. he composed the Thanos suite, typically what composers will do very early on, and we ask for this quite a bit, because we do use the music on set, as we said. We ask them to compose a suite of eight minutes of music that has varying range to it, it has dramatic moments, it has traveling moments, it has intensity, uh, um, it has fighting. You know, so the, the, over every two minutes, there's a shift in the music. Then we can source out what it is that works for the character. So it was very important, obviously, at the movie's Thanos' point of view, that we have a suite for him. And uh, that was critical in editorial uh, as we are going through the process. So he did this suite before he even started editing the movie and Brolin was able to listen to it and understand the gravitas with which the character was going to be presented. And that's a, uh, it's a really helpful part of the process.
also play selections of that for the other actors, like the first time they would encounter Thanos. You know, again, just to give them the sense of the tone of the character, you know. It's an amazing way, isn't it, to talk to your actors about the script and the story without having to use words. It's incredible. It's incredible, and especially in a situation where Josh Brolin's character is a digital creation, largely. It's all very specifically based on his facial performance, his body performance, but when he's acting with the other actors, he doesn't look like Thanos. So having having that dimension, that musical dimension, just to help create the, the, the tone of the character is very important on set. hearing um, Tom Hiddleston last night talking about how much Josh got into Thanos and how much he enjoyed and relished playing that part. Yeah, by the way, it could have been the opposite reaction, e easily, because you're... You could have been horrified. You're standing around set in, in a skin-tight suit that does look like a pair of pajamas with a bunch of little balls attached to it as tracking balls. You have uh, your head wrapped in, like, a. it, it looks like, you, you know, you've broken your neck in, in 12 different places, and you know, it's you been a, a metal pull up your yeah. back with a tennis ball on you're it. You're ruining the illusion for us here, guys. You're completely ruining And no, nobody's looking you in the eye because they're looking at your tennis ball, and, you're, and there you're looking at their belly button. So it's a very weird way to act unless there's an opportunity where we can put him up on a platform where he can actually make eye contact with the actors, but that's not always the case. So you could have absolutely the opposite reaction. He embraced this. You know, it was like an experimental theater project, and, uh, and he had an absolute blast playing the character. You know, we're using such cutting-edge technology that every nuance in his performance translates to the face of Thanos. It's pretty spectacular. Emotional realism is really important to us, and I think um, it's anathema to us to go sit on a set and talk ad nauseum to actors, especially in between takes. We try to communicate as succinctly as possible because we're trying to get them to stay instinctual. We don't want them going into their heads and thinking their way through a scene. It's typically when a scene falls apart. So a lot of our direction, we don't cut the camera. You know, we're just, we're at the monitor a few feet away from them. We're just, you know, yell out very succinct directions. I'm like, okay, great, that was fantastic. Now go faster this time, and we want you to get a little angry at the end of the take. You ready? Go, action. And then they have no time to think. And, you know, we'll run six or seven takes in a row. So music has that same uh, uh, ability to communicate succinctly to an actor what it is you want them to feel. Mm -hmm. Uh, with, without them getting in their heads. And I think that's why we, we look for techniques that uh, allow us to keep everything 
uh, emotionally grounded and uh, and away from you know, getting intellectualized. Was it the same process with Henry Jackman with the with the Captain America films Absolutely. in terms of you know providing this kind of soundscape to play and for the actors to hear and stuff as well and being involved so early on? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I would, I would say that you know the same thing I said about Alan earlier. I would say about Henry. He's brilliant, brilliant with music, but he's also really understands story. So at the beginning, it makes it so easy to collaborate with him because all you're talking about is story and character, and and they're translating that. And so Henry's the kind of guy that just brings us story ideas too. I, I love that about our relationship with him. He he, we had a a, a fantastic relationship with him through those films. Yeah, and he, uh, I mean, that, you know, Winter Soldier is a very different score than Infinity War. Infinity War is a classic, big, mm-hmm. you know, full orchestra score. Um, Winter Soldier is uh, more of a tonal piece. Um, you know, the movie's more tonal. Uh, and we're looking to set a, uh, a, a mood and tension throughout the movie. And uh, so we're using more rhythmic uh, um, uh, work throughout that film. More electronics. More electronics. Human voice that screams that Henry then uh, futzed with that, that became the um, Winter Soldier's theme. You that know, was so one of my favorite things that Henry did was that voice that he uses for the Winter Soldier.
you know, he wanted to do things that were unsettling, psychologically unsettling to the audience. Uh, there's a few moments with theme in them, which are great, because you're restraining the whole time with tonal pad. Mm. Then when you get to the theme, it really pops. His suite, the eight-minute suite he gave to us, had a lot of variation in it, but it was mostly the Winter Soldier suite. It's interesting, most of our suites start off with the villains, yeah. but I think that's <laughs> how you get your head into the story. It's the real kind of pulse of the film, really, isn't it? It yeah. is. Well, you also, you know, again, because these stories are serialized and you've seen the characters before, the villain's the new person to the table. So I think that's also a reason why we kind of lead with them in a lot of ways. Yeah, and they set tone. we build them around the villain and what the villain wants and I think the heroes are only as good as the villain so if the villain isn't popping you don't understand the villain's agenda or the villain isn't bringing a mood and a tone to the film then the who is or what is you know and uh, I guess it could be a, the hero's drive but a lot of times the hero's drive plays in contrast to the villain mm -hmm. like an in infinity war when the Avengers theme shows up it's in moments where it's needed it's required uh, that's what makes it work because it stands in contrast <laughs> I listed all the composers that have worked on all the Marvel films, and it's unbelievable. It's the most amazing collection of composers. You know, we've mentioned Ludwig, who did the Black Panther score recently with yeah. little help from Kendrick, but Danny Elfman and Tyler Bates, and it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. It's such an important part of this world, though, isn't it? Very important, and to Kevin Feige's credit, uh, the head of Marvel, he, he loves movie scores, so yeah, he's very uh, supportive in terms of being as ambitious as possible on that level. What about for you guys growing up and kind of starting to be film fans and those films that the music kind of became evident to you and the importance of it? Are there ones that stand out for you? Yeah, I think a you know, big one for both of us was Morricone, as it was for a lot of people. We were big fans of Leone movies. We, you know, we were big art house guys. There's a great uh, Cinematheque in Cleveland that has a great art house programming. And uh, we grew up not far from it, so we sort of lived at that place. and. We devoured as much uh, foreign and art film as we could. Um, and yeah, so the Leone movies became very important to us. And not only did we first become aware of score with, with that, but also just studying it. I mean, that's really where we sort of developed our understanding, I think, of how movie score works and what it can do in a film. I was to say, there's only one sequence in movies that makes me cry, and it's the end of Once Upon a Time in the West, and it's Morricone's score. And it literally just like the way everything builds to the end. It's an opera. It's an opera about industrialization and the dying of the West. And these two uh, 
opposing forces who are both the same breed that's going to die off and then they're going to go have like the last gunfight on the end of the at the edge of civilization uh and the score is just beautiful in that moment it really resonates with the themes of the movie in a way that i find very profound and sad I would also add this though about Marconi, uh, you know, he did a score for a film called The Mission, and the theme for that, like (laughs) if you turned it on right now, I would start bawling. I cannot not cry when I hear that theme.
taxi driver, Herman. When you start yeah. talking about it, they kind of it's almost like a door opens in your brain yeah. and all these things kind of fall out and you go, oh yeah, and then that, mm -hmm. and then that. Okay. Because we do take it for granted, I think, yeah. a lot of the time when you're in a cinema and you're watching a film because music's like a clever magician. Yeah, without question. I mean, I think it underscores emotion. We're guys who go to movies for emotional resonance. We're looking for an emotional reaction out of it. It's what we try to elicit out of the audience with our movies. And score is just integral to that. And then they can replicate that emotion without watching the movie again by just listening to the soundtrack. Uh, you know, there was many years where I would write just with the uh, with Herman's Taxi Driver score on a loop, depending on what tone I was trying to elicit. Carter Burwell, uh, Miller's Crossing, that's uh, just amazing. There are certain scores that can do that, Miller's Crossing, I just listen to during the day when I'm driving around, and it just resonates, and, and um, the moments from the movie come back.
look at also the, the wonderful composers, we mentioned a couple already you worked with, but aside from the Marvel work, all the other composers that you've worked with, and before you came we were just talking about Mark uh, Mothersbaugh, yeah, who, yeah. who weirdly I kind of thought he was two people because I, I watched a lot of him with my kids on Yo Gabba Gabba as the, the artist and I going, hey, I'm Mark, drawing dogs' faces and stuff, and then I was like, hold on a minute, oh my God, he's the guy who did Rushmore, and he's, he, I mean, amazing. Can we talk a little bit about working with with Mark? Yeah, he's avant-garde artist. I mean, he is, and he's a blast to work with. <laughs> he's got this really unique building on Sunset Boulevard that's like shaped like a spaceship. It's painted lime green. Painted lime green, and you know, he's a modern artist, so he, he does a lot, there's a lot of the artwork around the space. Uh, and he's an abstract artist, obviously, is, um, is his. In the center is where you score, where he brings in the players, and he's got a you know, I don't know, 50 instruments lying around, uh, you know, obscure instruments that, you know, when, as you're scoring, if you start monkeying around on something and you find a rhythm on it, he throws you in the room with the players and now you're, <laughs> and now, now you're playing rhythm on, on the score. So, and, and it's for him as well to kind of fish around while they're playing because he's always looking for uh, what's different, what's unique about this. And I think it's how he finds you know, the, the, the sounds that have defined Wes's movies uh, um, are all very, uh, very specific, and it's through that process. Yeah. The Ragnarok score was great. Oh, it's fantastic. Amazing, oh, yeah. So it's an amazing collection of sort of quirk and traditional composition uh, that really set the tone for that movie. I mean, that movie's as Monty Python as anything since Monty Python, so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. with him on Welcome to Collingwood. How it was did great. Well, Mark, Mark is also from the Cleveland area, so that was, that was a very Cleveland movie, so he, <laughs> I think he understood the uh, deep sensibilities of it. But first of all, you know, we had been big fans, so just to be able to meet him early in our careers like that and be able to work, collaborate with somebody like that was a huge thrill for us. And yeah, and just experiencing that really unique creative process that he has. It's very organic and very sort of whimsical, and you can sort of see that and feel that in his art. And uh, I think it brought a great vibe to the movie, really wonderful sort of magical realism to the film.
lot of Django Reinhardt influence on that soundtrack, and so he brought in some of the best Django S players in the world. And a lot of times they would just drop a track, and then he'd go, "Do it again, but let's change it from the middle." And you know, you could see him just evolving. He's, you know, he's an intuitive uh, composer, and he likes to change things up. It's not like I think that's why he likes to have his own building. It's, he doesn't show up at the score session and the orchestra's you know, sitting across the world somewhere on a little video monitor and they're just going to execute what he wrote. It's more of an evolving process. Bandcamp. Yeah, yes, it's Bandcamp, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's to, and a lot of his Devo co you know, collaborators work with him there as well. And what about when you work, I mean, Arrested Development, huge fan of, of the show, and working on, on TV, is it a really different process? I mean, David Schwartz, who, who did yeah. the music for that, who also did Northern Exposure, which was just one of my favourite shows growing up, it's amazing. What's the, what is the process, and is it a different process for TV? It's a little bit different. I mean, that show in particular was a really interesting pilot because we filled it with 80s needle drops. And we just couldn't afford the music. It it's was not. The cake. Yeah, we're, exactly. We're like that pilot was a redheaded stepchild over at Fox. It was not a uh, it's not embraced fondly uh, at the time. So they weren't going to drop you know uh, checks for the music on that. So Schwartz kind of found a vibe off of the needle drops, and he turned it into the pace and rhythm that you know became the score for the show. And then you know. Th Throughout the series, we we would do that, you know, where we drop in needle drops, looking for an energy, and then he would riff off the energy. He was amazing, though. How much can you do? You lift and push and struggle, but it puts on the other shoe. because the characters are so despicable that it's if with the score didn't the score didn't have some semblance of whimsy to it they'd almost be impossible to watch I think that was the great effect that, you know in many ways of that score is it just it, it was this that this that show was such a mashup of, of radical ideas and tones that the fact that the score could deliver this sort of sense of normalcy to it all, <laughs> even though it's just sort of, it was in contrast to what, what you were experiencing. I think that was a, a, a sort of a wonderful element and a big help to make the show sort of cohesive and sort of exist as what it, it, was, what it was, a TV show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that it's that tone. I mean, tone was so. There were the target for tone on that show was the size of someone's pinky. I mean, it was tiny. It was a very narrow range that we could get away with and still make the audience go on the journey with those characters. You know, music sets tone more than anything. It's probably your lead and and music that set the tone. So, uh, it was uh, it was uh, it was a very narrow target. And he nailed it.
got to definitely go crazy on the needle drops for You Mean Dupree, though. There are some awesome choices. Mandy by Barry Manilow in particular. I mean, I looked at the list of tracks and that was like, that's my playlist for today. Funky Cold Medina's in there. It was fun tunes. You obviously had a bit more cash to spend on that in terms of the needle drops and stuff. We did have more, uh, more to spend. And also that was very inspired by the character of Dupree, you know, yeah. and Owen Wilson, who played Dupree, was a producer on the film as well and helped originate and drive the project. So yeah, that's a good example of just really thinking about something from that character's point of view and sort of building out the needle drops as his world. What yeah. defines him, what makes him so eccentric. And music is, a, again, an easy way to define character. I remember all my life Raining down as cold as ice Shadows of a man A face through a window Crying in the night The night goes into morning Just another day friend Steven Soderbergh on the show talking about Logan Lucky and man he loves his music too. He does. He's a a geek is how I think I described him. He's fantastic with music and I mean I think you know one of our inspirations we we tend to pick a few inspirations for each of these Marvel movies that we work on cinematically. It could just be the juju that we're trying to steal from it or the structure Maybe there's a character moment or just the way the ensemble works in it just the smallest things and um um, this movie in particular, because it's such a wide ensemble, Thanos is on a very direct smash-and-grab mission. You know, there's a bit of out-of-sight in the movie. Uh, now, we're not needle-dropping the exact same way that he did in that film, but just, just from a, 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 an ensemble-feeling standpoint, uh, and what we're trying to accomplish with, uh, you know, the sort of quirky collection of characters uh, um, teaming up, you know, it has a little bit of that vibe to it. He's been an enormous influence on us throughout our careers, obviously. Yeah, we've had a very close relationship with him. We owe our whole career started in many ways because of Steven Soderbergh. You know, our very first film that we made in Cleveland, a little credit card movie, we took to the Slamdance Film Festival in 1997, and he happened to be at the festival. Uh, He he had a movie called Schizopolis that was opening the festival that year, and he saw our film there, and he uh, offered to produce our next movie, and that began a a really wonderful collaboration for us with him. You know, I was thinking we should give a shout-out to Ludwig Gordonson, who uh, obviously just blew the world away with his Black Panther yeah. score, but we, we spent a good decade working with him, my community, and the yeah, happy endings, course, yeah. and you know, he really, I mean, you talk about composers bringing something to life, community is probably one of the most difficult shows in TV history to work on, because we were changing genre every week, yeah. and we were asking him to, you know, with you know very limited resources to recreate a style, a tone, or a genre from all over the map on a few days' notice.
again because that show was also like a redheaded stepchild to the network. Our most popular TV shows were never really loved or embraced by the networks. Uh, but adored yeah. by the public. Yeah. yeah. But the show wouldn't have been nearly su as successful if he weren't so successful in scoring it mm -hmm. and having that, that range uh, and being that facile with, uh, with his abilities. And uh, so we owed, we owed a lot to him on that show. I spoke to Ryan about Black Panther and, and, and it was amazing to hear him talk about Ludwig's kind of dedication to the source music as well for, for those characters and how much effort he went into in research and finding instruments, instrumentation, players to, to bring that authenticity to it as well, which was incredible to hear. Absolutely, and the, uh, you know, the relationship between he and Donald obviously started on that show and he's now you know, produces and plays with Childish Gambino. Uh, and uh, it started with the raps that we were doing on the show. Uh, and Ludwig would score the raps and, uh, and you know, sometimes you just come to set and riff a little bit with Donald, and then I think that's where the you know the spark started, and created uh, you know and created something that had a, uh, a really strong impact uh, culturally. Donde esta la biblioteca? Me llamo Tibón, la araña discoteca. Discoteca, muñeca, la biblioteca. Es un bigote grande, pero manteca. Manteca, bigote, gigante, pequeño. Cabeza es nieve, cerveza es bueno. Buenos días, me gustas papas frías. Bigote de la cabra, es Cameron Díaz. Yeah, boy, boy. Yeah. What? It's 2009. Where Ludwig, I'm really, if I'm remembering correctly, I'm pretty sure he started as a DJ. He has that musical uh, sort of like he, he's looking, he's always looking for music and the way you're describing uh, that he, uh, way he approached um, Panther, similar to how he approached all our different types of things we would ask of him on community is just sort of like to go fishing in different sort of musical quarters of the world for ideas and, and tones and styles. Are you thinking about the music for the next Avengers film? Or we are. I mean, it's important to make sure that the two you know, movies stand in contrast. You don't want, I mean, it's one thing that's, you know, really a mandate of Anthony Eyes is that each film that we do for Marvel has got to be distinct. So I expected a very different interpretation on the next film. And We've largely uh, completed shooting on that film. So yeah. yeah. We shot both movies back to back and then we edited this movie, Infinity War, and finished that and the next movie is just waiting for us. What room. a nice position to be in. <laughs> or not. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, a, it's definitely, uh, once this movie is out into the world, then we'll only have one gigantic movie on our plate. So that, <laughs> that's a better situation. I'm afraid we've run out of time. I could talk to you guys for hours about this. And thank you so much for your time. And thank you for this. I'm so excited to see the rest of it. 20 minutes. Keep me going until, until the next two weeks. Anthony and Joe, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. It was a pleasure. Much. really appreciate Great. it.